All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Hi, this is Nick Freitas and welcome back to Making the Argument. So today we're going to be talking about Israel and Palestine. Obviously this has been leading in the news lately. We got several rocket attacks coming from Gaza into Israel. Israel has responded with military strikes. It's now escalating into a ground invasion and we're all wondering what's going to happen next because it wasn't just a few months ago when all of a sudden we were talking about historic peace deals between Israel and the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain. Um, it, it seemed like things were going in a positive direction and all of that has just been destroyed over the last couple of weeks. And so what I thought we'd do on this podcast is rather than just give you kind of an over the world assessment of what's currently going on, I think it's important to actually talk about the history of this conflict. Because this didn't start yesterday, right? This didn't start a couple of weeks ago. This has been going on for decades, and anybody that's been alive for a while knows that. And so I think it's important that we do an, an honest overview about what's, what's going on here, both within Israel, what sort of a state is it, what sort of Israeli military actions have been justified, which ones are potentially questionable, how has uh, the Palestinian Authority, before that the Palestine Libera uh, Liberation Organization, Hamas, how have they behaved? And, and how do we make sense of some of the comments that we see coming out right now, predominantly on the left, whether it's AOC or Rashida Tlaib? You know, they obviously seem to be very, very pro-Palestinian, and they've made some remarks about the state of Israel, calling it an apartheid state. And what I want to do is let, let's go over, let's do, an, let's do an honest review, and let's ask ourselves the question, is that if we were in the same position that Israel is right now, or if we're in the same position that the Palestinians are right now, what would we expect our leaders to do? What would be our reaction as individuals? And so we're, we're going to go. We're going to go a quick history. That's what we're going to spend this podcast doing. All right. So let's go ahead and start off at the very beginning. What is the Israeli state like? What What does that mean? Well, in 1948, UN Resolution 18 or excuse me 181 established two states in what we commonly refer to as Palestine. And if you're wondering what Palestine is, Palestine was a name that was, it was originally given by the, the Romans when it used to be the Judean province, they changed it to Palestine. And, and it's changed hands so many times throughout history. And we're gonna go over that a little bit. But what the Israeli state is, it was established in 1948 by a UN resolution. And it was one of two states that were established. There was a Palestinian state and there, there was an Israeli state. The Israelis accepted the terms and conditions under the UN resolution, and then the Palestinians in the, in the Arab countries bordering it did not accept it, and they immediately invaded, all right? But that's what Israel is as a state, all right? Now, the borders have changed significantly over time. We're going to talk about that, all right? 
So the first question is this. Do the Jewish people have any sort of claim to this particular area, right? Because one of the common arguments is well, you could have established an, an Israeli state or a Jewish state anywhere in the world. Why was it established in what we historically refer to as the Levant, right? That's, that's an area that encompasses several different countries. But traditionally, when you think about the Israeli state, when you think about the Jewish people, the Levant is, is what you think of. Now, over time, the, that area has been the home for, you know, going all the way back into antiquity, the Canaanites, right? And then over time, you obviously, when the, uh, when the Jews left Egypt, right, they came in and there was a series of conquests over there. And that's where you, you see the, the, the biblical rendition of the uh, original <clears throat> kingdom of Israel, right? And then it split into two kingdoms. You had Judea, you had Israel. But if you, if you want to actually track this over time, this area has been controlled by the Canaanites, the Israelis, the Egyptians, the Hittites, the Assyrians, uh, Babylonians, Persians, Macedonians, Seleucids, Romans, Parthians, uh, various caliphates, um, you know, the Ottomans. And then, and then finally, after World War I, the British took over that region. And during World War II, and, and post-World War II, you, you started to see what they referred to as the Zionist movement, right? And you can research this with, you know, figures like Theodore Herzl. And the whole idea of the Zionist movement was that the Jewish people needed a homeland and that that homeland made the most sense to place within the Levant, within that area that the Jews had continuously lived in for literally millennia, all right? And so there, there was an effort for Jews across the world and in the diaspora to start to come back and to buy property and to live within this region that, that again, there, there'd always been continuous presence of Jews within this area. <clears throat> but more and more, it was about coming back, buying property and living in this particular area with the idea that in the future, there would be an established Jewish state somewhere where Jews could live, where they wouldn't be fall under the oppression or pogroms or discrimination or genocide that they had experienced in places all over the country where they had lived, right? So that was the idea behind it. <clears throat> and again, the UN resolution established the Jewish state. Well, immediately, right? Immediately, as soon as, before the ink was even dry on the paper, Palestinians, Jordanians, and, and other Arab countries surrounding that, generally, you know, Syrians, um, Egyptians, etc., invaded on behalf of the Palestinians in order to crush the Jewish state. And the Jews fought back. They received very, very little help from the rest of the world. In fact, if you, if you look at the uh, initial Arab-Israeli war that was taking place in 1948, uh, it, it was back and forth. There was a ceasefire for a while, uh, for a very, very short period of time. It was a few weeks. The Israelis were able to get more munitions from Czechoslovakia, and they were able to defend themselves, and they were able to basically fight their Arab neighbors to a standstill in order to establish that state, right? And, and that's how things continued for a while. And then you see, um, you know, there was wars in, in 1956 during the Suez crisis. And then you have the Six-Day War in 1967, which was one of the most famous. This was a, this was a, a place where Egypt had been threatening Israel and, and all of the Arab neighbors at that point had essentially made it a, a, a mandate that they were going to destroy the Jewish state. They were going to destroy the state of Israel. And 1967 was one of the first major tests of that after the war in 1948. And what you saw was this uh, amazing Israeli airstrike that took place that essentially grounded the Egyptian Air Force. 
but the uh, Egyptians and the Israelis fought, then the Syrians got involved. Israel at that time essentially begged Jordan to stay out of the war. At that point, uh, Jordan still controlled uh, predominantly Jerusalem and the West Bank uh, from the Sea of Galilee. And the Israelis begged Jordan to stay out of the war. Jordan invaded anyways. And so what happened? Well, the Israelis fought back against Jordan. And in 1967, they took over the Sinai Peninsula. They took over the West Bank. They took Jerusalem. And they took the Golan Heights in Syria, which was a very strategic place. Of, uh, it was high ground, essentially. Um, and so you have the, the, the pre-67 borders and the post-67 borders where Israel had essentially beaten back the combined forces of Syria, Jordan, and Egypt with some assistance coming in from Iraq and other Arab countries as well. And you had the, the new borders as a result. Well, after 67, you had the war in 1973, referred to as the Yom Kippur War. That's where Egypt launched a surprise attack during the Israeli High Holy Day, the Jewish High Holy Day of, or High Holy Holiday of Yom Kippur. And at that point, it, it got <clears throat> very bad initially for the Israelis. If you, if you actually look, Moish Dayan, who was advising Golda Meir, who was the prime minister at the time, even Moish Dayan thought that they were going to have to sue uh, for peace in a way that was not going to be favorable to Israel. However, they fought back with the support of the United States. And you, you hear a lot of talk about how, well, the Israelis won because they held this U.S. aid. Well, the U.S. aid certainly helped, but it's important to remember that the Soviet Union was the one that was largely responsible for stocking the militaries of Syria and Egypt at that time. And in fact, if you look at the Egyptian strategy, it was all based on using an anti-tank weapon that the Soviets had provided along with uh, Soviet-provided anti-aircraft. And so the, the opening... Uh, the opening week or so of the Battle of the Yom Kippur War was going really, really poorly for the Israelis, which is, again, it is an incredibly small country. In order for them to go to war, they essentially have to shut down their economy in order to mobilize their military because a large portion of their military are citizen soldiers, right? They're guards, they're uh, reservists. But they called that up. They were able to fight back the Syrians on the Golan Heights. They were able to fight back the Egyptians for, uh, for a small portion. The Israeli uh, military actually crossed the... Um, Suez into Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea into Egypt. In fact, um, um, they, they held ground there for a bit, and then the UN came in and brokered a ceasefire uh, after the 1973 Yom Kippur War. Um, but again, that wasn't the end of it. You, now, let me go back a little bit. You did actually have a peace treaty that was originally, eventually signed by the Egyptians and the Israelis, and part of that peace deal was giving back the Sinai Peninsula to Egypt and Egypt, as part of that deal, had to formally recognize Israel as a sovereign independent state, which was pretty significant. Um, it actually resulted in the prime minister of uh, Egypt being assassinated by elements connected to the Muslim Brotherhood within Egypt because they were so furious at the idea that an Arab country would recognize Israel's right to exist. Um, you also had fallen wars. 1982 is the uh, war in Lebanon. That was a result of elements within the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which was a terrorist group uh, run by Yasser Arafat. Um, they were you know, launching terrorist attacks into Israel. It got so bad that Israel, working in conjunction with Lebanese Christians, uh, fought and eventually invaded in order to root out the different terrorist uh, bases that were in southern Lebanon. Um, then you move into 1987 through um, 2003, we had the first Intifada, this was essentially an insurgent uprising within Israel. You had a rash of terrorist attacks. 
um, suicide bombings, rocket attacks, etc. Then you move into 2002, 2005, you have the Al-Aqsa Intifada. Um, these all caused massive damage within Israel, and it was all terrorist attacks launched, um, you know, sometimes from Gaza, sometimes from other areas. Um, you have the 2006 Lebanon War, and then 2008, 2009, you have the Gaza War. And there was, there's been other conflicts since then, but uh, the one area in Gaza that I want to focus on that I find really interesting here is that there, there's always been this argument coming from Arab countries and from those that support the Palestinians is that this idea that the Israeli military is essentially occupiers, that any land that they took after the 1967 Six-Day War, that they're, they're occupying that region. And, and you can make a legal argument for this, but the question is, and as, as we look at international law, and you can even refer to Alan Dershowitz for this, who's a Harvard um, law professor, and he's on the left, but he even makes the argument that if you want to argue against the settlements in Gaza or the settlements in the West Bank, you might be able to do that, but you can't argue against the occupation because you don't have formal peace treaties with some of the countries that actually invaded and have been threatening attacks against Israel and launching attacks against Israel, whether it's Syria or whether it's elements of Hamas. And one of the things that's interesting is that Israel, in an attempt to sue for peace, actually got rid of all of its settlements within the Gaza Strip. They completely removed themselves from the Gaza Strip, and you, you had the Palestinian Authority take over within the Gaza Strip. So here's the question. If the argument that if Israel would remove its settlements would actually lead to peace, well, did it lead to peace in Gaza where they removed their settlements? No. Gaza launched and continues to launch to this day hundreds of rockets, rocket attacks into Israel. So, so giving up ground, giving up land for peace, did not actually secure peace for Israel. All right, so that, that's kind of an important overview of the Israeli state since 1948 to the present. Now, a lot of times the Israeli military, the Israeli government is criticized for targeting civilians. And so the question we have to ask here is not whether or not civilians get harmed within wars or conflicts. We know that they do. We know that they do. The question is, is does the Israeli government deliberately target civilians? And I, I find it interesting. There was a, a man named uh, Colonel uh, Richard Kemp of the British Army who served, he served in the Balkans, he served in Iraq, and he also served um, in, in Gaza as, as an observer. And what he witnessed is that the Israeli military went to incredible lengths to try to minimize civilian casualties, whereas Hamas deliberately went after civilian casualties because it briefed better in the press. They actually thought it worked out better for them. And so what they would do is they would actually put their headquarters, they would put um, their weapons, they would put their rockets, they would put them in schools, they would put them in hospitals, they would put them in these targets to where the only way the Israeli military could get to it was by going into these areas that typically are protected under the Geneva Convention and other rules of war. And so... How do, how do the Israelis respond to this? Well, what Colonel Richard Kemp recognized was that the Israeli military went out of their way to actually notify people before they were going to launch uh, uh, an attack so that civilians could be removed from the premises. However, Hamas would not only work to make sure that they were putting their weapon systems in places that there would be high potential civilian casualties, that they would actually encourage civilians to stay in those areas so that when they were killed as a result of a strategic or a, or a uh, surgical strike, 
they could then roll out the cameras and talk about how Israel was deliberately targeting civilians. Okay, so again, it's important to distinguish between a military engagement for which civilians are harmed um, despite the fact that you've done everything that you possibly can to try to ensure that they will not be harmed as a result of your actions versus Hamas, which deliberately targets civilians in Israel in, in, order, to, in order to invoke terror and then puts their own civilians, deliberately puts their own civilians in harm's way. I want you to think about it from this perspective. If Israel was sending suicide bombers into Gaza, or if Israel was specifically putting its military capacity, right, its tanks, its weapons, its munitions, in, in Israeli schools and in Israeli hospitals, would the Israelis be getting any sympathy from the world right now? Absolutely not. They would be condemned as terrorists for directly contributing to civilian, the, the deaths of their own civilian population. Right? That, that's how this would read out in the news if Israel was doing exactly what Hamas is doing right now. All right, so let's, let's look to another critique. So one critique is that Israel doesn't have a right to be there. Clearly, the, the Jewish people have a long history within the Levant. Another critique is the Israeli military deliberately targets civilians. The evidence we have is that is not true. That's not to say that individual Israeli soldiers might do something like that, but the policy of the Israeli Defense Forces is not that. And we have ample evidence to demonstrate that that is not their official policy, whereas it is the official policy of Hamas. Let's look at another critique. Another critique of Israel is that it's essentially an apartheid state. You've seen Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez say this. All right. What is apartheid? Well, when we think of apartheid, we generally think of South Africa. And South Africa had laws on the books, which was essentially deliberate legal discrimination and segregation. So essentially, the black natives of South Africa were not permitted to hold certain jobs. They were not permitted to serve in the government. They were not permitted to use the same public transportation. They didn't have the same access to education. They had laws that were deliberately put on the books to discriminate against them economically, socially, and legally. All right, so here's the question. If you're going to, if that's, if that's what apartheid is, and you're going to claim that Israel is an apartheid state, well, then we should be able to easily look at the laws on the books in Israel to determine whether or not it's an apartheid state, because here's what most people don't know. One-fifth of the population of Israel, one-fifth of the population of Israel is Arab. So, where are the laws on the books that say that Arabs can't run for office, that they can't go to the same institutions, uh, educational institutions, that they can't engage uh, economically, that they don't have, that they have a, a different set of rights before Israeli courts, where is that? Well, you're not going to find them because they don't exist. They don't exist in the laws of Israel. In fact, Arabs have political parties within Israel. They are represented within the Israeli Knesset, which is like the U.S. Congress. They occupy positions of political power. They, they uh, occupy positions within the Israeli court system. They have their own newspapers. In fact, some of the most outspoken critics of Israel are Ph.D. students at Tel Aviv University. So. If you want to say that you have some problems with Israeli law, okay, fine, do that, but show us the laws. But to just make this blanket statement that they're an apartheid state is absolutely absurd. And in fact, 
It even led one person, a South African civil rights uh, activist named Olga Misho, to say that not only was this incorrect, but that it was insulting to the people that actually had to live under an apartheid state to have what's going on in Israel described as apartheid. All right, so if you're, if you're going to listen to people talking about apartheid, I would recommend giving a lot less credence to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who knows little to nothing about the region, versus someone like Olga Meshu, who actually not only grew up or, or um, had her parents grow up in an apartheid state, but actively fought for civil rights for black citizens of South Africa, and who has also spent a lot of time in Israel. And what she comes back with saying, like, look, you look at what's going on in Israel, and, and sure, there's things that you can critique, but to compare it to apartheid is intellectually dishonest. It is a lie. It's not even a misrepresentation. It's not as if they're pointing to something and say, well, this could be considered. No, no, it's a lie. It is a flat out lie that they repeat ad nauseum against the state of Israel. Because if it was true, then they'd be able to point to Israeli law that would actually be demonstrative of apartheid policies, but they can't. So they just repeat it over and over again. All right, so that's a little bit about Israel right? and some of the claims against Israel. Now let's look at Hamas because the Palestinian Authority and, and the elected representatives ruling Gaza right now, the Palestinian Authority, are largely from Hamas, which, by the way, has been declared a terrorist organization by the United States and the European Union. Okay, it's not just like it's the Americans picking on Hamas. The European Union has why. Why? Because Hamas actively engages in terrorist activity. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and read from my notes here. Let's look at some of the articles from the Hamas Charter. Right? This was a charter that was adopted in the 1980s. They didn't make any reforms to it until 2017. I'm going to get into those. But I want to, look, I want to read for you some of the things directly from the Hamas Charter, which is essentially governing Gaza right now. All right. Hamas Charter, Article 13. There is no solution for the Palestinian question except through jihad. Hamas Charter Preamble. Israel will exist and will continue to exist until Islam will obliterate it, just as it obliterated others before it. Article 11. The land of Palestine is an Islamic holy possession, consecrated for future Muslim generations until Judgment Day. No one can renounce it or any part or abandon it or any part of it. So again, we're, now we're, we're not even talking about um, other people. They're saying that it is specifically a, a Muslim, an Islamic area, period. Article 13, Palestine is, is an Islamic land. Since this is the case, the liberation of Palestine is an individual duty for every Muslim wherever he may be. Again, from Article 13, peace initiatives and so-called peaceful solutions in international conferences are in contradiction to the principles of the Islamic resistance movement. Those conferences are no more than a means to appoint the infidels as arbitrators in the lands of Islam. There is no solution for the Palestinian problem except by jihad. Initiatives, proposals, and international conferences are but a waste of time and an exercise in futility. Article 7. The day of judgment will not come about until Muslims fight Jews and kill them. Then the Jews will hide behind rocks and trees, and the rocks and trees will cry out, O Muslim, there is a Jew hiding behind me. Come and kill him. This is also from the Quran. Article 32. <clears throat> Hamas regards itself as the spearhead and the vanguard of the circle of struggle against world Zionism. Islamic groups all over the Arab world should do the same since they are best equipped for the future role in the fight against the warmongering Jews. That is from the Hamas Charter. 
Not to mention the fact that there is ample evidence because Hamas takes credit for it. This is not speculation. Hamas takes credit for launching attacks against civilian populations within Israel, targeting Jews, and also killing Muslim Israelis. They specifically target schools, hospitals, buses, not because the Israelis are hiding weapons there, or not because it's part of the Israeli military infrastructure. They target it because it is a, it is a tool to strike fear and terror in the civilian population of Israel with the hopes of destroying them. So what's this grand 2017 update to the Hamas charter? Here's what they said. Hamas does not wage a struggle against the Jews because they are Jewish, but wages a struggle against the Zionists who occupy Palestine. Now, here's a question. Why did they add this in 2017? Why, why did they come out and change this component of it? Maybe it's because so much of their rhetoric has been so steeped in anti-Semitism that they wanted to try to say that, well, no, this isn't a religious component. This is just a, a political struggle. I, I, I'm sorry, but I, I don't think I'm buying that. That, that, sounds like, that sounds like trying to come back. That sounds like somebody went through a branding exercise and realized that they might be able to get more justification for their actions and more money for their operations if they said that this is purely political instead of blatantly anti-Semitic. So Hamas, which governs Gaza, like I said, is a terrorist organization. Hamas has fought three wars with Israel since 2008 and has fired 17,000 rockets in that span. All right? And polling, polling in Gaza suggests that Marwan Bargodi, founder of the militant Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade and convicted murderer of 26 people, convicted murderer, would win the next Palestinian election if selected as the candidate for Fatah, which is Abbas's party. So that's who we have currently essentially in control of Gaza at this point. And it, it's, it's not a shock or it's not a surprise to see this because if you look at the history of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, if you look at the history of the Palestinian Authority, what you see is a great deal of anti-Semitism going back decades. So for instance, um, you had, let me, let me go back to one of the leaders here. <clears throat> Haji Amin al-Husani, right? He was the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem during World War II. He, del he deliberately collaborated with the Nazis to include recruiting for the SS. He actually describes himself as a close relationship with SS Chief Heinrich Himmler, who, for those of you keeping score at home, masterminded the Holocaust. And he specifically proclaimed, kill Jews wherever you find them. But people might say, well, that was decades ago. Okay, Yasser Arafat. Yasser Arafat, who, who took over the PLO, is, and was one of the key people that was negotiating between Palestine and Israel. He echoed support for al-Husani and his agenda. Arafat regarded al-Husani as a hero and observed, we plan to eliminate Israel and establish a purely Palestinian state. We will make life unbearable for the Jews. Now you think maybe, okay, well maybe it's gotten better now that Mahmoud Abbas took over. Mahmoud Abbas refers to the Jews as dirty and has incited murder, exclaiming, every drop of blood spilled in Jerusalem is pure. Every martyr will reach paradise. And in 2018, the PA under Abbas directed $330 million to the PA Martyrs Fund, which sponsors stipends to terrorists and their families. All right, so that, that's, who's, 
That is who is running Gaza right now. That is when, when Rashida Tlaib and when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and all these people on college campuses and these people who go out and march, when they are talking about supporting the Palestinians, this is who is running the Palestinian Authority. And by the way, they were elected. So let's look at some other facts here. Now, here's the other thing that I think is interesting. Because there's, there's also this notion that is, it is because of Israel that the Palestinians are living in a constant state of refugee status and poverty. So let's look at the amount of money that has been given to the Palestinian Authority to alleviate the suffering of the Palestinian people. All right, in 2015, it was reported that the PA had received $25 billion in foreign aid since 1994. Yet Palestinians saw no improvement in their living conditions. This sum should startle because Palestinian foreign aid, when assessed on a per capita basis, exceeds the funds designated for the Marshall Plan by 25 times. For those of you who don't know, the Marshall Plan was all the spending that went into rebuild Europe after World War II. So on a per capita basis, we have spent 25 times what we spent on the Marshall Plan in order to improve the lives of Palestinians. And yet, there doesn't seem to be any significant improvement. It would seem that somewhere there's some overhead. So let's look at that overhead. So where's the money gone? Well, Arafat became a billionaire. His family became billionaires. His uh, financial advisor accumulated 500 million, having access to the hundreds of millions of PA dollars. Abbas, Muhammad Abbas, the current leader, has also amassed approximately 100 million despite being a career politician. And his two sons are millionaires who operate foreign aid contracting businesses. In 2018, it distributed 330 million worth of stipends to thousands of terrorists and their families, right? So this money is coming in. And part of the way that the Palestinian Authority uses this is to give hundreds of millions of dollars in stipends to people that launch terrorist attacks against civilians in Israel. I, I, I think that's, I mean, it, it, it's just amazing to me that when we're assessing this, this never wants to see, this never seems to lead in the news. This doesn't seem to make it into the conversation on our college campuses or these Hollywood starlets that get out there talking about the suffering of the Palestinian people. So what is the, what is the most tangible way that the Palestinian Authority has actually used these funds to actually try to improve the lives of the Palestinian people? Get this. Between 1999 and 2007, the Palestinian Authority recruited 70,000 new government officials while spending 70% of the Paris Conference foreign aid package on government salaries in 2008 and 15% of its entire foreign aid for, 20, for 2001. So basically the way that they actually provide economic opportunity is not by investing in key infrastructure or better education or providing a, a mechanism where Palestinians can start businesses and become economically independent or wealthy. No, no, no. What they do is they just give them government jobs. And the more dependent they are upon those government jobs, the less likely they are to actually question what the Palestinian Authority is actually doing with the money that, has been, that is supposed to be earmarked to improve their lives. Just hand them a government job. Make them a part of the Palestinian Authority. And that way, if, if foreign aid dries up, 
Well, they're going to be furious because now they're going to lose their jobs. Now they're going to lose their income because they're not actually providing mechanisms for them to become financially independent of the Palestinian Authority. So that's what Hamas is doing. That's what the Palestinian Authority is doing. And again, I, I, I want you to ask yourself, if Israel was doing a fraction of what the Palestinian Authority is doing, if they were making the sort of statements that the PA is doing, if they had in their charter the absolute destruction and killing of Palestinian people, if the Israelis had that in their charter, in their constitution, you think you would have heard about it? No, we know you would have heard about it. But Hamas has it. Do you hear about it? For those of you listening to this podcast, how many of you knew that the Hamas charter said the things that I just read off from their charter? How many of you knew they said that? Don't you think that the American press has an obligation to actually share some of that with us before they rush out to condemn Israel? But it's not just the press. We have things like the BDS movement, which stands for Boycott, Divest, and Sanction Movement, which a lot of U.S. universities, U.S. politicians have advocated for. And what this is, is essentially a movement to put an economic stranglehold on Israel until the demands of the Palestinian Authority are met. And one of the co-founders of this movement, who was actually a PhD student at Tel Aviv University when he co-founded it, went so far as to say that the BDS movement is not just about getting sanctions or agreements from Israel. It's about eliminating the Jewish state. So all those people that go out there and say that they support the BDS movement, not because they oppose the Jews or the Israeli state, but simply because they oppose some of the policies. Okay, well, then they need to understand that they're actually backing a movement that was designed in part to destroy the Israeli state. So what's the UN's been reaction to all of this? You know, the UN and the Human Rights Commission, that just, that paragon of defending human rights and, and individual liberties and equal justice before the law. What has the UN's response been to Israel versus the Palestinian Liberation Organization or the Palestinian Authority or Hamas? Let's take a look. According to Nikki Haley, when she was the ambassador, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, the General Assembly had passed over 700 resolutions condemning Israel. How many resolutions do you think the U.N. passed condemning Hamas? Keeping in mind, Hamas is a recognized terrorist group by the United States, Great Britain, the European Union, has launched over, over 17,000 rocket attacks into Israel, has deliberately targeted and massacred Israeli civilians, how many UN condemnations? So 700 for Israel. How many for Hamas? Would you say 100? Right, one-seventh. Would you say 100? You'd be wrong. How about 50? Maybe there's been 50. Nope, hasn't been 50. How about 10? Right, has there been 10, 10 condemning Hamas? No, the answer is zero. Zero. The so-called Human Rights Commission, as late as 2020, had a total of 23 resolutions condemning countries by name. All right, and here was the breakdown. North Korea, one. So, so North Korea, the, the country that literally starves and butchers its own people, got one resolution condemning. Iran got one, one of the largest state sponsors of terrorism in the world. The Autonomous Republic of Crimea got two. Myanmar got one. And the Syrian Arab Republic got one. 
There wasn't a single one condemning China, Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, Cuba, Turkey, Pakistan, Vietnam, or Algeria, despite the massive human rights violations in any of those countries. Right? So out of the 23, there were six resolutions. The remaining 17 were directed at Israel. It would seem that somewhere, somebody is tipping the scales at the UN. So here's the question. Assuming that the American media and all these Hollywood starlets and left-wing politicians like AOC, assuming that they actually want peace, okay, well, what do they suggest? Well, the primary suggestion has been trading land for peace. Now, there's been one time where this has worked, and that was the peace accord between Egypt and Israel, where Israel gave back the Sinai Peninsula in exchange for Egypt recognizing Israel's right to exist. Doesn't mean that everything has been puppy dogs and lollipops between those two countries. But that is one case that you can point to where there was some discernible peace that was achieved between peace and Egypt as a result of that land deal. But since 2000, Israel has proposed or accepted four land for peace proposals that would have created an independent Palestinian state and the Palestinian Authority has refused all proposals despite one of those proposals being so generous that it included all of Gaza, East Jerusalem, and 97% of Judea and Samaria. So, so Israel was essentially saying, we're going we're to give you almost every single thing that you want. And all we're asking for in return is don't launch rockets at us. Don't kill our kids on their way to school. Acknowledge our right to exist. And the Palestinian Authority said no. So if that's what the UN wants, if that's what AOC wants, if that, well then I, I got news for you. Rather than doing these quirky little Facebook memes against Israel, or rather than having the UN write yet another resolution condemning Israel, how about you go back to the Palestinian Authority and say, you know what, this actually looks like a pretty reasonable deal. This looks like a pretty reasonable deal. Do you think maybe you could accept that? Or at least while you're considering it, would you mind not killing innocent civilians, both Jewish and Muslim within Israel? Would you mind doing that? That, that seems like it would be fairly reasonable, but that's not what they're doing. And so this really begs the question because Black Lives Matter just came out with a statement of solidarity with the Palestinian people making some of the same claims that we've already debunked about apartheid, about occupier states, about colonialism, et cetera, et cetera. And so you have to ask yourself, if, again, if, if you reverse the names, if you said that Israel is the one doing this to Palestine and you listed off the terrorist attacks and you listed off Israel absolutely refusing to come to the table for any sort of peace deal, if you listed off um, the, the rampant corruption within the Israeli government where Israel was taking massive amounts of foreign aid and all their politicians were getting rich while their people were suffering. If that was the case, all of us would be universally condemning that. But for some reason, when the Palestinian Authority does it, when Hamas does it, they get handled with kid gloves or they get handled and treated as if they're the victims. Now, am I saying that I support every decision of Israel? Absolutely not. There are any number of things, there are any number of, of laws or positions that Israel takes that I would either disagree with or potentially disagree with. Am I saying that, that I think that 
you know, Palestinians don't have an argument when they say they want their own state. I'm not saying that either. I'm not saying that either. I, I would be fine with a Palestinian state, provided that it included peace for Israel. But when you have an organization that is so dedicated to where they've written it down in their charter that they want to destroy their neighbor, do I think it's reasonable to expect for the neighbor to just sit there and be rocketed and killed and have their civilians murdered and not be allowed to strike back? No, I don't think that's reasonable. I don't think it's reasonable and I don't think any reasonable person would think that's reasonable. So what is motivating this? Now, some people will rush to its anti-Semitism. Now, if you're talking about Hamas, I totally agree. I think Hamas is a blatantly anti-Semitic organization and I think that we have decades of proof to demonstrate that reality. Do I think AOC is anti-Semitic? I don't know. I, I, I will be happy to take her at her word that she is not. Do I think Rashida Tlaib is anti-Semitic? Yes, I do. Do I think Ilhan Omar is anti-Semitic? Yes, I do. But let's go to AOC for a second. Let's assume that she's not anti-Semitic, and for her this is purely political. My question would be is, why is, there, why is there this obsession for ignoring everything Hamas does and treating anything Israel does as if it's apartheid? And, and I wonder, I'm not accusing, but I wonder if some of this goes back into critical theory and Marxism. And, and again, we've discussed this before in critical theory where it's this constant conversation of oppressor versus oppressed. With, with Marxism, it was more economically, it was classes. With critical race theory, it's race, right? But it's this idea of bifurcating everybody or putting everybody into categories based off of you're an oppressor, you're oppressed. Because once you've, once you've broken down society that way, if, if AOC believes that, well, Israel is the oppressor, therefore anything the oppressed does is justified or just about anything they do is justified. I, I think that is a possible explanation for why you see this extreme left-wing coddling of organizations like Hamas and the Palestinian Authority, while at the same time, the absolute, I think, unhinged condemnation of everything about Israel. So I don't think it's all anti-Semitic driven. I think some of it is, is critical, critical theory driven. And again, I'm not accusing any one individual of that. I'm just saying that when someone is, is legitimately not anti-Semitic, but they support BDS, or they support Hamas, or they want the destruction of the Israeli state, I don't know what else justifies that way of thinking. If it's not anti-Semitism, then my next thought is it must go to critical theory with this whole idea of oppressor versus oppressed, and they've put Israel in the oppressor category, and they've put... Uh, the Palestinian Authority in the oppressed category. Again, if, if there's a different set of reasoning for this, I will be happy to hear it. I will be happy to, to hear it out, to review the facts and evidence, and, and try to understand a, a different viewpoint on this. But from where I'm sitting and from the evidence that I've looked at, and, and it's not as if I haven't heard the evidence from the Palestinian Authority. It's not as if I haven't heard their arguments. We're inundated with their arguments but by Hollywood, by academia, by a significant portion of the American media. We are inundated with their arguments by the United Nations. I've heard them. I just don't understand them within the context of what has been going on and what is currently going on within this region of the world.
I would be far more open to it if I actually saw some level of intellectual honesty and consistency with what is going on over there. But if, if this is the reality, if, if this is just going to continue to be fueled by justification, which is either anti-Semitic in nature or as a result of a critical theory approach to human beings and human interaction, well, then I would say you are putting the state of Israel in an untenable position. Because if this were me, and if it was my family living under the constant threat of terrorist attacks, rocket attacks, you damn well better believe I wouldn't just sit there and take it. And nobody has a right to expect Israel to sit there and take it. Because in every single one of those wars and conflicts that I read off, Israel was not the aggressor. Now, some people will argue, well, no, Israel is the aggressor because they're still occupying the borders after the 1967 war. I've got news for you. You invade a country and then you get your ass kicked, you might lose territory. In a country like Israel, where they've lived under the constant threat of terrorism and invasion by their neighbors, getting certain land of a strategic value to actually allow them to have some defense in depth, which is a core principle of being able to defend your country. And then just giving it back every time the UN forces a ceasefire, that would be suicide for them. And I think it was Benjamin Netanyahu that said it best. And again, I don't agree with everything Benjamin Netanyahu does. But when he said, if the Palestinians would lay down their arms, there would be peace in, the, in that region. And if the Israelis laid down their arms, there would be no Israeli state. I think he is absolutely correct. And I think the overwhelming preponderance of evidence proves that statement correct. So, as we analyze this, I'm not asking anybody here to give the state of Israel a blank check. I don't. I'm not asking anybody here to not be concerned for innocent Palestinians. I'm not asking anybody here to give up on the idea of a Palestinian state and Israeli state living in, in peace with one another. What I am asking is for some degree of reasonableness when we review what's going on in that region. All right. I want to thank you for joining us on Making the Argument. Also, I want to do a quick shout out for the Y Minutes. If you haven't seen them yet, go on Facebook, go on YouTube, check out the Y Minutes. We do some really interesting videos just telling short stories that are relevant and timely, talking about why do we believe the things that we do and trying to promote a free society. But as always, I thank you very much for joining. And please like and subscribe and leave us some comments. If you've been watching YouTube, if you've been watching Facebook, you'll see that I go on there. I love to interact with the people that are watching. I love to take the feedback. I had someone the other day actually give us a critique on one of the videos that we did for making the argument. And you know what? It was a fair critique. It was a fair critique. I'm not trying to agree with everything, but um, that critique helped us as we review what we're going to look at and how we're going to talk about it. Because one of the things I do want to try to avoid, and I've tried to avoid it in this, we don't want to assign motivations to everybody that we disagree with. That's why when I talked about anti-Semitism, critical theory, I'm not getting out here and saying that anybody that disagrees with me falls into one of those two camps. You might have a different reason of disagreeing with me, and I'd love to hear about it. I'd love to engage. All right, so we don't want to assign motivation, but if someone makes their motivation clear, it's not wrong for us to call that out and analyze that as well. 
Once again, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time on Making the Argument. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.